It's great to be worshiping this morning, and as you've heard by now, no doubt, we uh, have called Hanukkah to come onto our staff as our children and family pastor. She'll be starting in June, and Gary Coop is starting in June, so we now have our pastoral team assembled for the next stage in this uh, relay race we call life. So we're excited about that. We're excited about our annual meeting that happened on Monday and just the way um, we were able to celebrate what God is doing. We've gathered this morning to, to, to worship, to sing, to praise, but to learn from God, to be touched in our hearts. And so this morning we're going to read from John chapter 7, and I'm just going to read a couple of verses to start with because we're going to explore this chapter as we go. But in John 7, verses 37 to 39, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Spirit, Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So, Father, this morning we come and, again, we open your word and we pray that your spirit would come and that he would interpret and explain for us your word. Father, we want to get to know Jesus better this morning. We want to understand what he was saying when he described himself as living water. And we pray, O oh God, that you would speak to us through your message, Lord. Just lead us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be thinking this morning about the Feast of Tabernacles, which maybe is something you don't know a lot about. You will know a lot more about it if you stay awake for the whole sermon. But the Feast of Tabernacles was one of the great holiday festivals of ancient Judaism and living Judaism today. And I just kind of wondered, well, what would we consider to be the best holiday for us in the year, the, the most joyous, the, the most important. And I would think for Canadians, hands down, it would be Christmas. Um, that's when we travel. That's when we go to try and be with family. That's when we have these big dinners. That's when we decorate the houses. That's when we have sales for months and months beforehand. Uh, we try not to let people be alone for Christmas dinner. Christmas is our, our time. The U.S., it's important, but Thanksgiving has traditionally been even more important, perhaps. It's a time when people travel to get home, and uh, they have their turkey dinner, and they have their big festivals, and so a toss-up, maybe. In the church, well, in the church, without a doubt, Christmas Eve is the service for us. It's probably twice the size of any of our other services. And second would be Easter. Easter Sunday morning, that's our next biggest service. It's interesting, historically in the U.S., the largest attended service was Mother's Day. So in a previous church I was at, which I didn't start but came in when it was struggling to try and help it kind of find its feet, it had started because they had been influenced by American church planting advice. They actually started on Mother's Day. Now, in Canada, you know, I mean, Mother's Day is the same in the U.S. It's the second Sunday of, uh, second Monday of, uh, Sunday of, <laughs> second Sunday of May. Um, but, uh, 
you know, starting a church in the middle of May in Canada when you know that everybody's going to go on holidays within four weeks in the middle of June and they're not going to come back till September. Well, that's what this church did. Uh, they started out. They had a not bad service the first Sunday. It, it diminished down. By the end of the summer, 90% of the people had forgotten that they came on Mother's Day and they never came back that September. Now, on Jesus' Day, um, there were three feasts. People were encouraged to attend in Jerusalem one of these feasts. And so the three feasts that were there were the, the Feast of Passover, which most of us are somewhat familiar with if you've been around church at all. And if you've gone to communion, uh, that's what we're reminding ourselves of. The second one was the Feast of Tabernacles or booths. It goes by both, but we'll use the word booths because it just makes more sense to us. And the third one was the Feast of Pentecost or weeks. Uh, because it was seven weeks later. Um, and it may, you know, because we've learned so much as Christians about Passover, it may surprise you, but that was not the number one feast. The number one feast in Israel was the Feast of Tabernacles. If there was a feast that you were going to go up to Jerusalem for, the majority of people would choose that one. It was the most joyous, it was the most festive, it was the closest to Christmas. Passover was a little bit more like Good Friday. It was a little bit more reflective and solemn. But the Feast of Tabernacles, man, that was just fun. And we're going to learn a lot about it and uh, maybe more than you ever wanted to know. But it's important to understand because John's Gospel wraps about four chapters around that festival. So to understand it, you have to understand that the Jewish year started in February. Now what you may not understand is our year used to start in February as well. That used to be New Year's. And if you count seven months from February, you get September. And September comes from Sept, which means seven. And although it's the ninth month of the year, because the year used to start in February, it was actually the seventh month. October, which comes from Octo, which means eight, is the tenth month. November, Nov, uh, Novo, which means nine, comes in the eleventh month. And December, Dec, like decimal comes in the 12th. But they counted from February. Well, it's sort of what the ancient Jews did as well. They had um, February is the start of the year. Then they counted seven months because seven is a very religious number. You know, seven is this holy number of uh, the days of the week and the Sabbath and all that. And the seventh month was called the month of Tishri. And because that was a seventh month, it was one of the holiest months. Uh, eventually, uh, it would become New Year's and Rosh Hashanah, which is uh, Hebrew for uh, head of the year. Um, Rosh Hashanah would move to the first of Tishri, the first of that seventh month. Um, but it got its name, its, its numbering uh, from when it was back, New Year's was back in February. The 10th day of that month, was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the holiest day of the Jewish year, where they would remind themselves that God has come and rescued them from their sin. And then from the 15th to the 21st of Tishri, the seventh month, would be the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was a seven-day feast, and then there was a special eighth day that followed it. And the rabbis basically believed that after repenting and getting right with God on that Day of Atonement, on the 10th day, by the 15th day, you could just celebrate being in his presence, and you could have this festival in Jerusalem. And then there was a special eighth day 
called the Shemini Atzret, and it comes from uh, Numbers 29, where it says, "On the eighth day, which is Shemini, you shall have no, you shall have a solemn assembly, an Atzret, and you shall do no ordinary work." So, eighth assembly became the name of the day. And the rabbis kind of explained the, that special day um, that God said to the people after the seven days of tabernacles, I find it hard to part from you. Stay with me one day more. And uh, that was how special tabernacles was. That's how special this eighth day was, this holy day. And I, I get some of this from a book that I picked up when I was in Jerusalem. And it's written by a rabbi who's one of the leading rabbis today in Israel. And he called it practical Judaism. I, I, it's kind of how to be Jewish. I kind of think of it as how to be Jewish without being circumcised. But um, basically it's a how-to manual for living the Jewish life and how to celebrate the feast today. And it's just this fascinating explanation of this passage. But the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, so tabernacle just means tent. Booth is like a, a little booth that you build, like a little hut. Um, it comes out of Leviticus 23, and it was when God was helping the people from Israel, when they left Egypt with Moses through the wilderness, they, they tented for those 40 years. And so this is just a reminder uh, this festival is a reminder of how God walked with them through the desert. And it's how he led them through the wilderness into the promised land. It's how he provided food and water and all these things. And as they dwelt in tents in the wilderness, so they were to spend these seven days living in tents or these booths that they built out of tree branches. In other words, it was a camping trip and a religious festival put together. And in Leviticus 23, here's the instructions that they were given. On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you've gathered in the produce of the land, which means after harvest is finished and all the hard work is done, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest. On the eighth day will be a solemn rest. So we've talked about that. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord for seven days. And you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. And it's a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. And you will dwell in booths or tents or tabernacles for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, for I am the Lord your God. And Jews still observe this today. If you go to Israel, uh, you will see people living in their booths. And the, the tradition now is that you have to eat every meal for these seven days in your booth. And there's a couple of pictures that'll come up. Just uh, one of people building the booth and then one of what a street in Jerusalem looks like when everybody's um, uh, balcony is turned into a booth. But in Jesus' day, attendance at the feast in Jerusalem was compulsory for every male who lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem. So that kind of 15-mile circle around Jerusalem. But people from all over the country would come. They would just pack up the station wagon and come on down to Jerusalem, and they would find enough booths, uh, branches to make a booth. And you would bring an animal with you because you wanted to celebrate and you wanted to thank God and you wanted to do this thanks offering to God. And so you would... Uh, 
bring an animal to sacrifice and you would bring it to the temple and the priest would kill it and would take the kidneys and the liver and some other inner parts and that would burn on the fire because that was considered the choice parts that were given to God. Uh, the priest would get a little cut of the meat and then you would take the rest of the animal kind of in a wheelbarrow back to the booth and there you would get to have a barbecue and you would cook it there. And in Israel in those times, people ate meat very rarely, especially the poor people. Some would maybe never eat meat during the year except during this feast. And so what you would do is you'd find some other families and you would sacrifice your animal and then you'd all eat it together because it couldn't last till the next day. It was too hot and there was no refrigeration. And then the next day, the next person, next family would do theirs and the next day, the next family. So you would have this meat for like a whole week. And it was this great celebration that was going on. Um, in fact, so many people would go and do that, that in Jesus' day, there was a surplus of priests. In fact, they divided the priests into 24 different groups, and every group would just come to Jerusalem for two weeks, one at the first half of the year and the second and the second half of the year, and they would just have two weeks of being able to do the priestly duties in Jerusalem. But during the Feast of Tabernacles, all 24 courses or orders of groups of priests would come because they needed that many to be able to handle all the sacrifice that's going on. So this is the, the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a party. It's Mardi Gras with your clothes on. It's just what everybody did. And Jesus' brothers say to him at the start of our passage that we didn't read, you got to go up there. You can't miss this. And Jesus responds, no, the timing's not right. I'm not going to go up. And they basically say, well, it sucks to be you. We're going up, and off they head to the feast. And it's not till about day four, it says halfway through the feast, that Jesus gets up there, and he finally gets to the feast. Now, maybe you're thinking, <laughs> Dale... You're just nerding out on ancient Jewish customs that have no meaning to me. But let me just encourage you. The background to this is crucial to understand what John is trying to tell us about Jesus. In fact, let me give you the end of the sermon now just to sort of keep you interested in what we're doing. What John is doing, if you haven't caught this already in our sermon series, what John is doing in his book is he's trying to show us that Jesus is God, that he is the Son of God that he is the promised Messiah. And how John does this, which is different than the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, how John does this is he said Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. So he says if, uh, if the temple was crucial, the heart of the worship, well, Jesus is the new temple. Uh, Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us. Uh, if Sabbath was the holiest day of the year, uh, Jesus is the new Sabbath. He's the one that can heal on the Sabbath and work on the Sabbath, and, and he's fulfilling the Sabbath. Uh, if Passover was the, the most holy of the feasts, well, Jesus is the fulfillment of Passover. He is the Passover lamb. Uh, John says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now in these chapters, he's saying that if Tabernacles was the key feast, if it was the feast that you want to be at, if it defined Israel's year in some way, Jesus is the fulfillment of that as well. And that's why we just need to understand, because we'll learn more about Jesus the more we learn about how he's fulfilling this. So, 
The Feast of Tabernacles, it's a party. It's a seven-day event with an eighth day thrown on at the end. It is a time of uh, celebration, of partying, of eating, and there are some spiritual moments each day. There is a light ceremony in the evening, and there is a water ceremony in the morning. And it's the water ceremony that we're going to look at this week. Next week, we'll look at the second half of this, and uh, we'll look at the light ceremony where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But the water ceremony happened each, uh, each day during the feast. What happens is that the priests would line up, and a group of them would go down, and they would carry on their shoulders this golden jar for water. And they would go down to the pool of Siloam, which is in Jerusalem, and they would go down there and they would dip this jar in and they would fill it with water and then they would carry it back in procession and the, and the crowds would be singing along. And we didn't get into it, but it said in that passage about how to uh, celebrate that they were to take branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook and rejoice before the Lord. And so they would take these and they would tie them together, these four different kinds of tree branches, and they would make what's called a lulal, and it would be something that they would wave as the water was being carried up. And they would be chanting and singing some of the psalms. And the water was a reminder of how God had provided for the people of Israel during the wilderness wanderings. If you remember, Moses led the people out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea, and then they got into the desert, and the first thing that happened is they ran out of water. And the people started to complain and grumble. And in Exodus 17 comes this. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you will strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord their God, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And so in that story, God says to Moses, Take your staff, go to this rock, hit the rock with your staff, and out of it this water flowed. And everybody had enough to drink, and everybody was happy for a while. And so that's one of the main things that is remembered in the Feast of Tabernacles. September was the end of the dry season in Israel. Um, so it doesn't rain much from about May, April, May through to September. Uh, it starts to start raining through then, and then through the winter, it's kind of the rainy season when all the land gets refreshed, and then you plant your crops and start again. And so part of this was at the end of the dry season, it was asking God to send the rains for the winter 
so that the crops could grow for another year. So part of it was remembering what God had done in the desert. Part of it was asking God for rain in the present. And then thirdly, there was a part of it that was about the future. And it was, it saw water in symbolic terms as a sign of God's presence and a sign of God's spirit. And uh, readings would be done each day in the temple. And some of the readings were these. Um, in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. So that's from Joel. Or from Zechariah. On that day shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And a little bit later in Zechariah, on that day living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. So the eastern sea would be the Dead Sea, the western sea would be the Mediterranean. It shall continue in summer as in winter. So all these promises, um, most streams in Israel are wadis. They're streams that go dry in the summer. And it's all this promise of water, this promise of year-round streams. And then the one from Isaiah 44. And now hear, Jacob, my servant, thus says the Lord, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I've chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, and I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And it's out of all of this understanding of what Tabernacles is about, and it's out of all these passages of Scripture that we just read that we get to where we started when Jesus stands up in the middle of the feast, and on the last day of the feast, that eighth day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And Jesus stands up in the middle of the temple, and it's on that eighth day, and on the eighth day, it was a little more solemn, a, a conclusion to this thing. They don't do the water ceremony. They don't do the light ceremony. It, it's kind of a closing service before everybody heads home. And in the midst of that, Jesus says, hey, do you see what's been happening? Do you understand how God provided water in the wilderness? Do you understand how we've had this water ceremony each day where we've been asking for rain to come and to give the land new life and to allow for a fresh harvest and how we've been praying that God would pour himself out like water, that his spirit would come and fill us. And then Jesus says, this is all about me. I am the fulfillment of of this feast. And John reminds us that as Jesus was the fulfillment of the temple, so that the living water was going to flow from him. And on this eighth day of the feast, where, where it seems like everything is over and the water is no longer flowing, Jesus says, the water has not dried up, for I am the living water. I have come to dwell among you. Or as it says back in John 1, verse 14, 
the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. And so the, the first way that this comes true through Jesus is that living water flows from him in salvation, in helping us to have a relationship with him. One of the interesting things is that uh, when John describes Jesus' death, he describes a part that the other three gospel writers don't include. Let me read it to you. Jesus is on the cross. He's been there for a while. He's very close to death or at death. And it says in verse 31 of chapter 19, since it was the day of preparation and the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. That's the thief on either side of him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now, the other gospel writers don't include that, but John does, because it, it works into his theme of how Jesus is the fulfillment of the different feasts. It says that they broke the legs of the two thieves. These people are hanging on a cross, and when you broke the leg, it took away their support, and so um, they would slump down, and they would actually not be able to breathe, and so they would die more quickly. But it says that they didn't break Jesus' bones because he was already dead, but the not breaking bones has to do with the Passover lamb. One of the specific things that is said about the Passover lamb is that you cannot break any of its bones. And the blood that flows is, is the blood of the lamb that's flowing out. But there's also this cryptic thing about water. And maybe it has to do with human physiology that when you pierce the heart, uh, you know, there's water and there's blood there. But it's uh, significantly symbolic as well. And it comes back to this living water flowing from the side of Jesus, flowing from the heart of Jesus, if you want. He would die for us that we can have forgiveness, that we can have a relationship with God. And so the first thing that, the way that Jesus fulfills this is he is the sacrifice that brings us to God, the living water that pours out. But the second thing is that it's also to do with the coming of the Holy Spirit. After his death and resurrection, Jesus met with the disciples and he poured out his Holy Spirit on them. In John 20, 21, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And just like God breathed into Adam, if you remember the story from creation, where God made man out of mud, and then he breathed into his nostrils and he became a living being. So Jesus breathes into these disciples and they become spiritually alive. But in a sense, he's poured out his spirit on them. And so when Jesus stands up at the feast and he says, I am the living water, he's saying that he's the fulfillment of all these different things. He's the living water. He's the truth of the Israelites in the wilderness who grumbled about the water. And the last verse of that story in Exodus says, they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? 
And Jesus, John tells us, Jesus came and tabernacled, dwelt among us. But being living water was also, if you remember that story of the Samaritan woman, what he told the Samaritan woman by the well. Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And Jesus is saying that not only in the past was God present, but in the, not only in the past, but in the present, God is here, and he's pouring out living water. He's pouring out life. Pouring out that we can have joy and have it in abundance. And it's looking forward from then, but looking for us on how God would pour out his spirit on us, that he would fill us with his presence, that we can have life and have it in abundance. That verse from Isaiah that was read at the feast, for I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, and I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And the promise was that God would come and his presence would be there in, in the lives of future believers, in the lives of us. That we would have life in abundance, that we would have his living water. And so the feast looks back. It looks back to when God supplied water in the wilderness and Christ was present. It looks in the present to rain that will come on the land, that will refresh the ground. And Jesus promises, as he did to the woman, I will be living water for you. And it points to the future. To the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which God has done. And as he does in our lives, even today. So Jesus came, and, and one of the signs that he was God is he fulfills this feast. The feast actually pointed forward to him. And I wonder, as we close out this morning, just this idea that actually that feast is to be symbolic of our lives as well. That as we've come into this relationship with God, it's to be this joyful time of living and feasting and enjoying God, that life is to be lived in fullness and abundance. It's robust and it's just to be enjoyed as God is present with us. But as Jesus came and tabernacled or dwelt or lived among us, so our call is to go and be the people who live with others, to be the people who go into our worlds and to take this joy and to take this experience and to take this relationship with God, to take the presence of God's spirit that out of us would flow living water, out of us would flow God's presence and God's spirit, that wherever we are, we bring his presence there, that God's Holy Spirit will flow like a river, and we will bring God's presence like water in a dry, thirsty ground. Isn't that a wonderful picture of what it means to be a Christian? It's not a, I got to obey all these rules. It's not a, well, I can't do all these things. It's not a, well, I got to do all these things. It's a, how do I live in the presence of God, 
in this joy-filled life where life is this feast of tabernacles, this great feast. And as I live that out with God, just the joy and the spirit flow from me. And we become, in some small way perhaps, living water for those around us. And we draw people to us. So the Feast of Tabernacles. We're going to look next week at, at another thing that happens there with the, Feast of, with the Ceremony of Light. But for this morning, what is it this week we can do to enter into this joy of the Lord? Maybe this morning is just saying to God, God, I would, I, you know, like Psalm 51, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Just, Lord, give me that joy. Fill me with your spirit. Maybe we need to pray for God's spirit to come on us in power. Maybe we need to pray for God's spirit to come on us in fullness. Maybe we need to pray for God's spirit to flow through us into the lives of others around us. Maybe we need to give ourselves permission to enjoy life, to live life to its fullest so that we become attractive to others so that when they see us, they see God and they're drawn to the one who is truly the living water, to Jesus, to his spirit, to God as Father. I pray this week that we can live life, to live feasting, because God has poured his living water into us. Father God, we thank you this morning for this Feast of Tabernacles, for this lesson on joy and this lesson on just being full of life. Father, we pray that you would help us to just draw close to you. Father, we pray that you would give us your spirit in fresh measure, that he would flow into us. Father, we pray that we would have your joy, that we would live life in abundance. Father, we pray that you would help us to know your presence as the presence of living water in our lives. And we thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.